If you know you're on the right track, if you have this inner knowledge, then nobody can turn you off, no matter what they say. These are the words of Barbara McClintock. No, not the award-winning children's book illustrator born in 1955, who continues her beautiful work today, but an earlier Barbara McClintock, a woman of science. I first heard of this incredible female scientist about a year ago as I was listening to Robert Sapolsky, the very witty American neuroendocrinology researcher and author, currently a professor of biology, neurology, and neurological sciences and neurosurgery at Stanford University. In his 2010 Human Behavioral Biology Lectures, offered through a podcast, he talks in one of the lecture episodes about molecular genetics and mentions her discovery and story. Ever since then, she stayed with me, and I wanted to learn more. And so I've chosen to let this episode of A Beautiful Gray Sponge, where we learn about the great minds of others who've shaped our world, to be about her, Barbara McClintock. She was actually born Eleanor McClintock on June 16, 1902, in Hartford, Connecticut. Her parents, Thomas Henry McClintock, a physician and the son of British immigrants, and her mother, Sarah Handy McClintock, a descendant from the Mayflower, had four children. She was their third. Compared to her siblings, Marjorie, Menon, and Malcolm, Barbara was described as a solitary and independent child. Nathaniel Comfort, a biographer on McClintock, described her as an outgoing person who loved to talk to people, but also needed solitude. I don't know about you, but this reminds me of myself. And as we learn more about her life and work, we can see how these traits show up and how they helped her move through the world. So remember, it's the early 1900s. In 1908, when she was still a little girl, the family moved from Hartford to Brooklyn. McClintock completed her secondary education there at Erasmus Hall High School, where she discovered her love of science and graduated early in 1919. Even as a very talented student, she almost didn't go to college. Her mother believed a college degree would harm her chances of marriage and adamantly contested her plan to go to Cornell. But fortunately, her father intervened. Go, Dad. In 1919, at the age of 17, McClintock enrolled in the Cornell College of Agriculture. There she thrived. She joined the student government, played banjo in a jazz band, and excelled in the classroom where she took a course in genetics. Genetics was still new at that time, and Cornell only offered one undergraduate course in it but McClintock took to it immediately. Women during that time could not major in genetics at Cornell, and therefore her degrees came from Cornell's plant breeding department, where she studied botany. As a graduate and postdoctorate student, she worked as a botany instructor and was instrumental in assembling a group that studied the emerging field of cytogenetics, the study of chromosomes' genetic expression. Chromosomes, remember, are those long strands of DNA and protein that contain most of the genetic information in a cell. She specifically studied cytogenetics in maize. As a native of Kansas myself, I was familiar with the term maize, 
But for my listeners who may not be aware, maize is another word for corn. She eventually earned a Bachelor's of Science in 1923, and later in 1927, her PhD, both in botany, both from Cornell University. Even after graduation, she continued to study maize. In 1931, she and another female colleague published a paper that established that chromosomes formed the basis of genetics. Based on these experiments and other publications during the 1930s, she was elected Vice President of the Genetic Society of America in 1939 and President of the Genetic Society in 1944. With a Guggenheim Fellowship, she'd gone to Germany even in 1933, but left early because of, you guessed it, the rise of Nazism. When she returned, and Cornell wouldn't hire her as a professor on account of her gender, uh, sure, she could be a botany instructor during her graduate and postdoc, but not an actual professor. The Rockefeller Foundation still funded her research there. Later, she was hired by the University of Missouri to teach. Go Mizzou, right? And worked there from 1936 to 41. In 1941, McClintock moved to Long Island, New York, to work at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, where she spent the rest of her professional life. By observing and experimenting with variations in the coloration of corn kernels, she discovered that genetic information is not stationary. Studying these variations in those colors, she concluded that genes could pick up and move around or jump by looking at the generational mutations in maize. Aware that her work challenged conventional science at the time, McClintock put off publishing her theories. But finally, in the summer of 1951, at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, she gave a lecture on her findings at the annual symposium. It didn't go well. As she later recalled it, the audience was either perplexed by her theories or downright hostile. She said, they thought I was crazy, absolutely mad. She was mocked, ridiculed, and ignored. These discoveries, so far ahead of her time, alarmed other scientists. After that, she stopped trying to convince others. She disappeared from the science world for decades, at least not publishing or lecturing. But she kept on with her research and never stopped pursuing her theories or trusting herself. She said, I just knew I was right. Anybody who had had that evidence thrown at them with such abandon couldn't help but come to the conclusions I did about it. During this solitary period, she'd said, Over the many years, I truly enjoyed not being required to defend my interpretations. I could just work with the greatest of pleasure. I never felt the need nor the desire to defend my views. If I turned out to be wrong... I just forgot that I'd ever held such a view. It didn't matter. Finally, in the mid-1960s, after new technologies and molecular techniques proved her absolutely right, the scientific community began to come to the same conclusions, validating her findings and giving her the credit that was long overdue. McClintock received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1983 the first woman in this category, to be solely recognized, more than 30 years after making the discoveries for which she was awarded the honor. She was the first to prove 
that genes were physically located on chromosomes, and while she was awarded for her discovery of transposable genetic elements, what she really wanted to be recognized for was her discovery of genetic regulation, the gene's ability to turn other genes on and off. And that isn't the only award, although esteemed, or accolade she received, right? So some of the awards she received prior to the Nobel Prize In 1947, she received an Achievement Award from the American Association of University Women. In 1959, she was elected a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And in 1971, Nixon awarded her the National Medal of Science. After her Nobel Prize in 1986, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Cool and was elected a foreign member of the Royal Society in 1989. And in 1993, she received the Benjamin Franklin Medal for Distinguished Achievement in the Sciences of the American Philosophical Society. (sighs) Gosh, that's a long title. In addition, she was awarded 14 Honorary Doctor of Science degrees and an Honorary Doctor of Humane Letters. I wondered about that one. So, side note, Doctor of Humane Letters is an honorary degree awarded to those who distinguish themselves through humanitarian and philanthropic contributions to society. The criteria for awarding differs between institutions. There's really no set criteria. However, it's typically awarded to individuals affiliated with the institution or who serve as keynote speakers at university events. But even Other unique variants exist. For example, in 1996, Southampton College awarded, get this, Kermit the Frog, an honorary doctorate of amphibious letters in recognition for his contribution to children's education. (laughs) Okay, back to McClintock. Obviously in good company with Kermit, It was her childlike sense of wonder and curiosity that inspired her. She'd said, I was just so interested in what I was doing. I could hardly wait to get up in the morning and get at it. One of my friends, a geneticist, said I was a child because only children can't wait to get up in the morning to get at what they want to do. She also loved and respected plants, not seeing them only as objects to be studied about, but as living things human beings can learn from to know them. She said, no two plants are exactly alike. They're all different. And as a consequence, you have to know that difference. I start with the seedling and I don't want to leave it. I don't feel I really know the story if I don't watch the plant all the way along. So I know every plant in the field. I know them intimately and I find it a great pleasure to know them. I have to mention, too, that the NobelPrize.org website, one of the several sources of information I researched, has so many amazing pictures of her throughout her childhood and young adulthood. So if you're interested, that's NobelPrize.org. I'd encourage you to take a look. I think Sapolsky, remember that's Robert Sapolsky, was lucky to have met her. She died September 2nd, 1992, at the age of 90. And that's McClintock, the scientist. 
Stay tuned for another episode of A Beautiful Gray Sponge to learn about another great mind that's influenced the world in which we all live, a mind developed by their own life story, a story we might relate to in one way or another. A Beautiful Gray Sponge seeks to explore connections, sentient connections across time and space by sharing more about the lives of others. I hope you'll stay open and surprised, curious and reflective. I hope you'll join me again. If you'd ever like to support my work, that's evolving too. Creative merch is being designed and I can't wait to have that ready. In the meantime, I'm exploring Patreon and Substack as a listening community space. I also have Venmo and Crypto for no gift to small donations if you're so inclined. You can find more information on that by visiting my personal website, L, M as in May, trosel.com. That's L M T R O S T L E.com. Until next time, I'd like to say do good. And if you can't do good, at least do no harm. Thank you for listening. <laughs>